I absolutely love that last song, Goodness of God. Um, it was a song that made its way onto my running playlist uh, a number of times. It seemed like almost every time I went running in the last few years that that song was on there, and I just found myself going, gosh, I need this reminder. Is anybody with me? God, your, your goodness and your mercy follow me every day of my life. That's uh, Psalm 23, verse 6. That word follow in the Hebrew is the word radaf. Will you say that with me? Radaf. And it literally means to hunt. It's a picture of a, of a lion or a cheetah going after its prey. It's not, a, it's not a soft word, like a passive follow in the shadows. It's a going after hard. God's goodness and mercy are chasing, radafing you this morning. And the question is, do we have eyes to see and do we have a heart that's willing to receive it? If you have your Bible with you, would you open with me to Acts chapter 15? Acts chapter 15. Uh, a number of years ago, the Broadway musical Hamilton debuted. It, it was met with much positive response. In fact, it debuted in uh, 2015, and in 2016, it won 11 Tony Awards. It has, uh, to date, netted over $650 million on Broadway alone, and it has become one of those stories, one of those movies now also, that just seems to resonate with us. And if you've seen the movie, or if you've been to the musical, one, we're all jealous of you, but, but two... Um, you, know the, you know the story, right? It's a, a story, and I know this is going to be hard for you to believe, but it's a story about political conflict. I know, it's crazy. This isn't anything new that we have people that are on different sides of the aisle, and it's a story about Alexander Hamilton and his rivalry with a man named Aaron Burr. And they um, went against each other politically, and they campaigned on people's behalfs against one another. And at one point in time, Alexander Hamilton made a comment that assaulted Aaron Burr's honor. And Aaron Burr demanded that he take it back. And Hamilton refused, and so Aaron Burr did what any of us would do. He challenged him to a duel on the side of a cliff. And they met on the side of a cliff. The year was 1804, the date July 11th, and the story goes that they sort of stood back to back, walked, turned around, and Aaron Burr fired the first shot, and it went just above, um, or sorry, Alexander Hamilton, no, who shot who? Alexander Hamilton fired the first shot, it went above Aaron Burr's head, and then Aaron Burr responded, and he shot Hamilton in the stomach, right? He was taken back to his New York home where he died the next day. I'm so glad that we've progressed from there. <laughs> I'm so glad that we no longer kill our political opponents. <laughs> or do we? Uh, we have our ways in 2021, don't we? I mean, over the last few years, we've seen the rise of things like call-out culture, outrage culture, and cancel culture. We saw this in the heated debates and presidential election of 2020. We've even seen it in the rise of things in our cultural moment that are, are, are brand new on the scene. You can go to the Oxford English Dictionary and look up Godwin's Law, and here's what you will find. 
There is quite literally a law that states, as a discussion on the internet grows longer, the likelihood of a person or people being compared to Hitler or another Nazi increases. That's a real thing in our day and our time, people. The longer the conversation goes, the more likelihood somebody will be referred to or compared to Hitler. I mean, we live in a contentious moment, don't we? And we have a tendency, if we could be honest this morning, we have a tendency to fairly quickly write people off that we disagree with. In their brilliant book, The Coddling of the American Mind, authors Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff point out that there's this new movement that's going on amongst college campuses and intellectuals and in scholastic circles in our day and time. The, the movement is called redaction. Redaction. And here's what, here's what they mean. When somebody writes a paper or does a study, and there's a group of people that don't like what they find in this study, people call for a redaction. Essentially, I mean, just think of it, back onto the playground where you say to somebody, take it back. Yeah. Take it back. Now, what used to happen was that people would write a rebuttal. They would say, hey, here's why your research is off, here's why it's flawed, here's why I think you went the wrong way, and they wrote a rebuttal. Now we just say, take it back, take it back. And it seems like the angrier people get, the more likelihood is that they will actually take it back. It's Dr. John Perkins said it so well when he poignantly stated, this generation is the first to turn hate into an asset. See, I would argue that while we're not calling for duels on the cliff's edge anymore, we still are shooting off our proverbial bullets. And if we think it's different inside the church, I think we're wrong. Uh, recently, I read a biography about the great Eugene Peterson, and in it, he recounted his conversations with a highly debated theological figure in his day named Harry Emerson Fosdick. And while he disagreed with what Fosdick concluded, listen to what Eugene Peterson wrote in looking back on his interactions with Fosdick. He said, I think Fosdick was quite wrong in some of his conclusions, but I also think we were even worse in our vilification. See, see there's a way to handle disagreement that preserves somebody's humanity and dignity and and also allows us to continue to grow and to become more and more like Jesus. See, here's what I want to wrestle with this morning. I want to wrestle with this question. How do we disagree in a way that honors Jesus and allows ourselves to continue to grow? And I think that's a really, really important question in our cultural moment. Because here's the truth. Don't miss this this morning. In fact, will you just look up at me for just a moment? Growth requires change. Growth requires change. I mean, if you're a parent of young kids, you see this on a daily basis, can I get an amen? I mean, sometimes we put our kids to bed at night, they wake up in the morning, and you can almost see that they've grown. Anybody else have kids in this sort of phase where you go, what is going on with them? They are constantly growing, which means they are constantly what? Changing. I mean, think about it. In order to grow, you have to learn something new, think about something differently, or experience something afresh. Yeah. Now, no, 
Please, please hear me on this. I am in no way, shape, or form saying that you should agree with everything you read. Please don't. I mean, Abraham Lincoln taught us not to agree with everything we read on the internet, right? Okay, some of you will go like later on, like, Abraham Lincoln, the internet, oh my goodness. Yeah. No, 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 I'm not suggesting that we should agree with everything we read. But sometimes listening to somebody with whom you disagree will mean you become more solidified in your convictions, which is both growth and change. But here's the key principle that I think this passage is going to invite us to wrestle with and dwell on this morning. If you're unwilling to change, you're unable to grow. If you're unwilling to change, you're unable to grow. But here's a question. Here's a question. I don't want to write everybody off with whom I disagree, but I also am unwilling to let go of truth. Who's with me? Who's with me? Put your hand in the air. Come on, people. Who's with me? Yeah. Like, I want to keep growing. I want to keep becoming more like Jesus, but I am unwilling to let go of truth. And so here's what I want to do this morning. I want to explore a story in Acts chapter 15 that brings together these themes of disagreement and seeking God's direction. That that brings together these themes of a church that's in conflict and trying to figure out where the Spirit is leading and where the Spirit is moving and how God is challenging them beyond some of their preconceived notions of the way that things should be. And I think that some of you are here at Mount Hermon and you're in this season of life where you're asking, God, where are you leading? God, what are you doing? God, what's the, what's the next step in our journey? How can we be faithful to you, even if it doesn't make a lot of sense to us, and even if it isn't what we had originally dreamed? God, how can we be faithful to you, and how might you use the voices of other people to speak into our life? And see, here's what we know from history. Some of the greatest movements in church history have been born out of sharp disagreements, where people came together, wrestled, and then were eventually led by the Spirit of God. So I want to lean into their example this morning, and I want us to wrestle with how do we follow the Spirit's lead in our life, and how do we open ourselves up to learn, even maybe from people with whom we don't see eye to eye with completely. That's exactly what they did in Acts chapter 15. Are you there? Acts chapter 15 is roughly 20 years after Pentecost, so we have two decades of the church developing tradition and a way of doing things, a way of operating, and that's where we find ourselves in Acts 15 verse 1. It says this, some of the men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and to the elders about this question. So quick time out. This is no small debate that the church is having. Amen? They're not talking about the color of the carpet in the church. They're not talking about whether or not they're allowed to bring coffee into the sanctuary. Okay? I don't know what your church argues about. Those are a few things that ours has argued about lately. Okay? Yeah, they're not, they, these are not peripheral issues. What are they discussing at this meeting? Did you catch it? Yeah, yeah, circumcision, and specifically, 
what does it mean to be saved? Circle that word saved in verse one. This is a massive theological and important discussion that they are having. So Paul and Barnabas and some others go 300 miles. They leave Antioch and they go down to Jerusalem to meet with other people about this question. I would argue that this is the most important church business meeting that has ever taken place. I know your church has had some important ones, I don't know that any of them are as important as this. And so at the very beginning of what we might call this this council, it says this, verse five. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Now let's all admit that this would make church membership classes a little bit more interesting. Wouldn't it? If they'd gone this direction, I mean, there'd be surgeries involved, right? Okay. But what are they, like, like, look at what they are wrestling with. The theological question, what does it mean to be saved? I don't know that there's a more important question than a person can come to a conviction about. What does it mean to be redeemed? Um, They're talking about their community. How, How wide is our circle? Who's a follower of Jesus? Who's, who's in and quote unquote, who's, who's out? They're talking about their own history and their preferences. Have we been going about this right over the last 20 years or, or have we missed the boat? They're talking about their, their future implications. I mean, you know somebody had to pipe in and go, well, if we don't require people to follow the law of Moses, what else are we gonna throw out? I mean, somebody had to be going slippery slope argument on this, right? If we go down this road, what else follows? And I'm sure somebody muttered under their breath, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. (laughs) These are big issues, huge questions. Like I said, the most important church business meeting of all time. And here's what we're gonna see. Here's what we're gonna see. There are people on both sides of the aisle, both sides of the debate, and they come to the same table and they are going to teach us that an openness to God's direction requires a willingness for interruption. Both of them are going to teach us that. An openness to God's direction requires a willingness for interruption. So here's the truth of the matter, friends. If God is going to lead, we have got to give him control. And that's not just true for the corporate church in general, it's true there, but it is true in your life today as well. If God is going to lead, we have got to give him control and we have to be willing to let him take us to some unexpected places. I mean, I know we love to put this verse on coffee mugs, but I'm not so sure we like to let it chart the course of our life. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Now, if he's making my paths straight, that means who's not? Me. I'm not. He's the one who is doing that. And for both sides, there's there's an interruption that's coming. We're going to see it. There's a compromise that has to take place as they seek God's direction, as they try to hear from God, where are you leading us? And God, what are you doing? 
And my guess is, my guess is you've experienced some interruptions from God as well. Just by a show of hands, how many of your lives have been interrupted by God at some point or another? Okay, right. Yeah, sometimes it comes in the form of a diagnosis from the doctor, right? Sometimes it comes in the form of a, an unexpected opportunity. You've had a number of interruptions that have come, just a stirring from God. Something is changing. And so for the church in Acts chapter 15, they're challenged to rethink and to think again about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and what it means to live in light of that calling. Now, here's the truth of the matter. Normal, normal is digging in our heels, doubling down, writing everybody off who disagrees with us, and charging ahead. You know what's not so new and also not so normal? Listening. Learning. Growing. Trying to follow the way of Jesus. And this church is going to model for us what that looks like. And there's three things that they do that try to help them discern, God, where are you leading us? And God, what are you doing in our midst? And I think these three things apply not only to our individual lives, but also to our corporate life as a capital C church as well. Look at what they did, starting in verse 6. It says, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Remember, the matter is, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? What do you have to do to be in? Do you have to be circumcised? Do you have to follow the law of Moses? What do you have to do? And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up among them and said, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between them and us, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, now, just a quick time out. Here's what Peter's saying. When I started to preach the good news of the gospel, people who hadn't heard about the law of Moses people who hadn't been circumcised, people who were not Jewish, put their faith in Jesus. And essentially what Peter is saying is, um, I think he's saying you have to go back further than the law of Moses to find out what God's doing here. You actually have to go back, not to Moses, but you have to go back to Abraham. And it was Abraham who taught us that the righteous shall live by what? By faith. And Peter goes, yeah, yeah, God is doing a new thing, but it's really an old thing that he's bringing people to himself, not through the law, but through faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? That's quite the statement by Peter on the church business floor, is it not? He's going, hey, um, well, you want to talk about the law of Moses, G- great, fine, and about keeping the law of Moses, wonderful. How many of you have kept it? And you just imagine him looking around going, oh, wait. Oh, right, none of us have stuck the dismount on that one. Okay, so exactly why are we trying to impose this on these new Believers, and then he says this. This is such a great clarifying text. He says, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. If you believe it, say amen. 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 
And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Paul and Barnabas relate signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. They fell silent and they listened to the stories. God, what are you doing? God, how are you moving? God, what is your spirit uniquely doing in our day and our time? And here's the way that this church, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the sort of the seedbed of disagreement, starts to come to a conviction about where God is leading and the direction God is taking. The first thing they do is they recognize God's activity. Say, God, this is how you're stirring. God, this is how you're moving. God, this is what you're up to. The church has traditionally called this discernment. In the process of discernment, we ask that same question. God, how are you moving? And God, what are you doing? I don't know about you, but I'm much more adept at saying, God, I'm going to make a plan. I'm going to come up with a strategy. I'm going to bring it to you so you can bless it. Anybody with me? That's often the way that we go about things. We love progress. We love to make things happen, especially in the West. God, here's the plan. Would you bless it? And in so many ways, we treat the spiritual life like like a motorboat. We're going to put the gasoline in it, and we are going to rev the engine, and we are going to drive where we want to go. But I think the spiritual life is designed to be lived far more like a sailboat than like a motorboat. Where we put the sail up and say, God, how are you moving? God, where are you leading? Where is the wind of your spirit blowing? Because friends, God's will and God's direction always follows God's work. And I think that's important because you and I, we walk in these doors with expectations and experiences. And sometimes, can we just admit this this morning? Sometimes God works outside of our expectations and our experiences. This happened in the scriptures as well. Jesus was walking with his disciples and John said to him, in fact, this is in Mark chapter nine. Mark says to him, or sorry, Mark records, John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Now, I'm not exactly sure what they anticipate Jesus' response being, right? I mean, let's play this out. Jesus, what did they want him to say? Oh, good, because I wanted more demons, right? Like, what, what are they hoping happens? No, no, so he continues, but Jesus said, don't stop him. For, for whoever, for no one who does the mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who's not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. And here's what Jesus is saying to them. I know it doesn't fit your experience or your expectations, but I am on the move. And are you able to celebrate the way that I am moving and I am working that even you're not a part of? To recognize God's activity in your life and in the world in general. It might be a new opportunity that's presented to you that you weren't praying for, that you didn't seek out. My wife Kelly and I had that happen to us two years ago when a church in San Diego called us and said, would you be willing to consider coming to be our lead pastor? We had a life we loved in Colorado and the spirit just started to do something different. 
It, it might be a latent desire that you have that you just can't seem to shake. Like, like a longing to adopt or to be a foster parent. Or you go, God, I just, I can't seem to get this seed out of my soul. I keep bringing it before you and you just seem to keep saying, yes, that might be what God is doing in your life. Or maybe, maybe it's a reality that you've learned about God that just seems to become a seed in your soul that's starting to grow and you have to respond to the way that he's moving and he's working. One of the things I love to do is to keep in mind that God is moving in ways outside of my own little bubble. Amen? Did you know that one of the greatest church multiplication movements in the world today is going on in Iran? And it's happening primarily underground, and God is using primarily in Iran women to spread the gospel, and God is using dreams and visions to bring people to Jesus. Can we celebrate that? Praise God for the way that he is moving and he is working all around the globe. And the question is not, God, are you moving and working in my life? The question is, God, am I willing to get on board with the way that you're moving and you're working or am I gonna hold on to my agenda and my plan and say it's gotta be this way? That's what the early church had to wrestle with at the Jerusalem council. There's a second thing they did though. So the first, they, they just stood back and said, God, how are you moving and how are you working? Second, said verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the word of the prophets agree. Now, you and I should read. With this, the, the scriptures agree. The Bible agrees. And he's going to quote from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. What are they doing? They're going back to the scriptures and they're seeking out the scriptures to say, God, does this line up with what you have said? Does this line up with what you've promised? Does this follow the promise and the pattern of what you have declared will happen and will come to pass? What do they do? The second thing that I would suggest anybody who's seeking direction from God should do is align with Scripture. That's what they do. They align with the Scriptures. They follow the Scriptures. They don't just read the Word. They do the Word. Now, some of you are a little bit ahead of me, and you're going, okay, well, Ryan, 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 Ryan. Which scriptures should we align with? That's a really important question. It's a question that many people in your circles are asking. As Chip pointed out, we live in a world that's far more like the first century than the last century. It's not, just, it's not generally assumed anymore that the Bible is the word of God. In fact, you have people in your circles who are looking at you and going, you don't really do all this. And they're right. Aren't they? I mean, there's some commands in the Old Testament that we don't follow. Let me give you a few of them. In Exodus chapter 21, it says that a child who curses their parents should be put to death. Anybody done that one lately? Please don't raise your hand. Okay? 
Deuteronomy, or Numbers chapter 5, it says that if a woman is suspected of adultery, she should drink sort of muddy water, and if her belly starts to bloat, she is guilty and should be put to death. Anybody gone there lately? Didn't think so. Leviticus chapter 19 says that you should not wear clothes with more than one type of thread. Now, I want you to introduce yourself to the person in front of you and then just peek inside their shirt and make sure they're not in violation of the law. Um, Leviticus chapter 11 says that eating pork or, or read bacon is wrong. Now, I know some of you are like, I was with you up until the bacon part, right? Like, Ryan, I was dialed in. But it's true, isn't it? We don't apply directly every single command that we read in the Bible anymore. So how do we explain to people? We follow and align with the scriptures. Now, now, please let me be clear. I am fully convinced, don't miss this, I am fully convinced that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Yes and amen. But that doesn't mean that we apply every old covenant command one-to-one directly. It means we seek it out to say, God, what were you saying to them? And in light of Christ, what are you saying to us? So I don't think it's genuine anymore to just say, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. That's not going to get the job done in our cultural moment. We have to be more nuanced and wise about the way that we seek out guidance from the scriptures. And that's exactly what the early church did. This wasn't a command that they were able to apply one-to-one. They looked at the prophets and went, God, this is what it seems like you said you were going to do. And we want to follow with the trajectory of where you're leading. I was reminded of a quote by Wayne Gretzky where he said, I skate to where the puck is going to be, not to where it has been. That's exactly what the early church is doing in this moment. They are skating to where God said he was going to lead this church, his church. So you may be going, okay, well, Ryan, that answers the question of what we don't necessarily do What do we do? How do we seek to align our lives with the scriptures that are the truth that we want to center around? Great question. Great question. The Apostle Paul actually answers that for the church at Rome. Here's what he said in Romans chapter 13. He said, oh, no one anything except what? Say it with me, Mount Hermon. Love. To love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Let that sit on you for just a moment. If you love, you've fulfilled the law. For the commands, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. Time out. What did Paul just quote? The law, the Ten Commandments. So Paul's not like digging deep to a commandment that you might have missed somewhere along the way and going, okay, you fulfill this one through love. He's going to the big ones. The Ten Commandments. He says, you want to keep those ones, you want to fulfill the intention of the law, love. And any other commandment, he says, any other one you can find in the scriptures are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, the early disciples were convinced that love was the intent of the entire law. The entire law. 
They get that from Jesus, too. You can look at Matthew chapter 22. So with fear of oversimplifying things for us this morning, we have two commands that we should keep with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength. Do you know what they are? Love God and love your neighbor. Love God and love people. Those are the two greatest commands according to Jesus. And I would just encourage you this morning, never break the greatest command to keep a secondary command. Never, keep, never break the greatest command. Love God, love people to keep a secondary command. Because Jesus doesn't like it when we use his word to avoid doing his will. Now, just to be clear, just to be clear, loving people doesn't mean you tell them what they want to hear. Do any parents want to give an amen to that? We don't love our kids by letting them do whatever they want. To love somebody is to, is to will the, their good, even when it's costly for us. To will the good of another. So a few questions that we might ask as we seek God's direction is, does this thing allow me to, what I'm, what I'm thinking about doing, Lord, and what I'm, the direction I'm holding in front of you, does it allow me to love people more and more? Does it fight for the good and flourishing from others? Can I love you and love others and do this thing? Is it spreading the net of your love wider and wider? God, can I align with love God, love people, and do this thing even better? If so... God might be saying, go. After all, love is the new law. But look at what else they do. Look at what else they do. Acts chapter 15, verse two, it says that there was no small dissension and debate with them. Acts chapter 15, verse seven says, and after there had been much debate, before that in verse six, they talks about that they get together and they consider the matter Verse 19 says that they're, therefore, my judgment, so they're making judgments and they're trying to discern together where God is leading and what God is doing. Debates, consideration, judgment, and then a miracle. Verse 25. And it seemed good to us, having come to, say it with me, Mount Hermon, one accord. I mean, after all that, are you kidding me? One accord? This is... A miracle, is it not? They start off disagreeing with each other sharply, digging their heels in, many of them probably walking to Jerusalem saying, over my dead body, will they be allowed into the church like that? And in verse 25, after discussing, and as we'll see, the spirit moves in their midst, they say, we are of one accord. What did they do? How did they get there? Well, First of all, they saw how God was moving, they aligned with scripture, and then what they did was they sought out wise counsel. Wise counsel. And I'd say if you're here today and you're going, God, where are you leading? God, what are you doing? How are you moving in my life? Can I just say that this is a great paradigm to bring before the Lord and others who are in your midst and really try to seek out, God, what are you saying? What are you saying through what you're doing in my life already? God, what are you saying through your scriptures that teach us the truth? God, what are you saying through the people that you've surrounded me with? This is the way that the early church makes, I would argue, the biggest decision it's ever made. 
But please, when you seek out wise counsel, please do not make the mistake of just surrounding yourself and listening to people with whom you agree. Um, Our church, some of the folks in our church are reading through the Bible this year, and I was just struck as I read through the story again of Solomon and his sons, and specifically his son Rehoboam when he takes the throne. When he takes the throne, he seeks out counsel from some of the older elders, and they tell him, listen, the people have had enough. You need to go a little bit easier on the people. Don't work them to the bone. Don't work them so hard. And Rehoboam sits back and goes, it's an interesting idea. And then he goes to some of his buddies, some of his younger friends, and they say, no, no, no. If you want to be a king people respect, you've got to work them hard. I don't know if you know the story, but Rehoboam listens to the voice of the people who told him what he wanted to hear. And eventually it leads to a splitting of the kingdom. And it leads eventually to his demise. And I just read back through the story of Rehoboam and I go, if he just would have listened to the right voices, his story may have been a little bit different. And I wonder if God would want to say a similar thing to you and to me this morning. If we would listen to the right voices our story might be a little bit different. I'm struck by the fact, friends, that there are people on both sides of this argument or debate or counsel, as we might call it, in Acts chapter 15, that walk away both convinced that God had led and wrestling a little bit because they're not sure it's what they should do. They call it compromise. They called it compromise. And I believe that you and I, we're in a moment where we need to come to the table again and and listen. It requires that people are informed and willing to share their opinion. It requires that people are patient enough to listen to opposing viewpoints. And it requires demands that we are humble and willing to change if it seems like we're off from what God's word has said. Yeah, I'm sure. There were Jewish Christians walking away from this council going, I can't believe we aren't telling people they need to follow the law of Moses. And I'm sure that there are Gentiles walking away from this council saying, I can't believe they're asking us to do those things that they're asking us to do. (laughs) And listen to what those are. Verse 28. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to lay any greater burden than these requirements. So this is the summary of what they decide. That you should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, from blood, and from what has been strangled. So the first three regulations they lay out are about dietary restrictions. And they are a way to love people who are wrestling with what the Gentiles eat. It's a way to love the Jewish people who are going, we're just not used to that taking place. And from sexual immorality. So just a quick time out. Uh, A strong sexual ethic has been a part of the church of Jesus Christ from day one. It was one of the things that set the church apart In the Roman Empire, it was one of the things that allowed the church to flourish in difficult times. It was what made the church a peculiar people. And friends, if we lose our conviction of a purity and a sexual ethic, we will lose one of the things that has made the church the church for the last 2,000 years. 
And I just want to try to impart on you and press upon you as much as I can as a pastor for one week or a few days. Please don't lose that. Please hold on to that. It is one of the ways that we love the people around us, even if they push back against it. And then they conclude this letter that they're sending to the churches, and they say, if you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. It's like Jerusalem Council, out. And this is an important decision. I mean, if you are grateful that you can eat bacon, you are grateful for what they decided here. If you're grateful that your church doesn't have circumcision as part of its membership class, you're grateful for what they decided here. If you're grateful that we don't stone our children, you're grateful for what happened here. Amen? But notice that the prohibitions that are given are not about salvation. They're not about how to be saved. No, that was settled. In verse 11, we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. No, no, what they're telling people is how to help them, quote, do well, how to help them be a community of faith that exhibits the way of Jesus, that walks in the way of love, and that holds out the hope of the gospel to those around them. But this is their paradigm. Recognize God's activity, align with scripture, seek wise counsel. Now, if you have your Bible out in front of you, let me just highlight a few things that are interesting in the conclusion that they came to. Verse 22, it says that they, it seemed good to the apostles and the elders. Verse 25 says, it seemed good to us. Verse 28, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And I started to wrestle with this, going, the biggest decision the church has ever made. They made, not based on an audible word of God, not based on going to the scriptures and saying, we have chapter and verse on this. We can point you at right here. This is exactly where it comes from. This is exactly what we should do. No, the early church made the biggest decision it had ever made based on what seemed good to them and what the Holy Spirit confirmed in their midst. And I wonder, I wonder if God leads us in very similar types of ways. That as we see what he's doing, as we align with scripture, as we seek out wise counsel, that there's this interruption that often comes in our life that is spirit-led, spirit-guided, and God-directed, that in the midst of interruption, the spirit often gives invitation. And I think there's an invitation in front of you and in front of me today as well. An invitation not to to cancel but to converse, not to be stagnant but to be strengthened, not to be stuck but to be led. And I know that some of you are here today and you're going, God, I'm asking for direction. And I think God is saying to you, this is what it looks like for me to lead and for me to guide. Will you? follow. Let's pray. So Lord, we want to bring our whole self before you. God, there's things that you're doing in our life that maybe are unexpected, just like for this Jerusalem council. 
things that we're wrestling with, things that maybe we don't understand fully yet. And Lord, for my friends in this room that are wrestling through decisions, there's some important things in front of them and they're struggling with what direction to go, what to give their yes to and what to say no to. Lord, I pray that you would speak to them, that you would lead them, that you would guide them. Father, that they might hear your voice clearly. Father, show them from your scriptures what you're inviting them to do and how you're inviting them to love. God, open their eyes to the way that you are moving around the world and in their life. And Father, I pray that you would surround them with people that they can be honest with, that would speak truth into their life, and that you would use to shape and to guide and to lead. Oh, Holy Spirit, thank you for the way that you affirm direction in and amongst groups of people and in our heart and in our lives as individuals. Let us be the kind of people that can confidently say, it seems good to the Holy Spirit and to us. And so we're going to follow. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.